This morning, our theme is unity. Everyone recognizes the value of unity. In a nation, in a business, in the workplace, in families, and in the church. Uh, you have heard the quote, united we stand, divided we fall. Um, it was first attributed to an ancient Greek storyteller by the name of Aesop, who lived in the 6th century BC. And this slogan has picked on steam and has been used throughout world, uh, um, world history in various ways. In political speeches, not just by uh, U.S. leaders, but other leaders throughout the world. It has been used in songs, and it's even the state motto uh, of one of the, of the states in the United States, the state of, or the Commonwealth of Kentucky. They actually have this written. United we stand, divided we fall. We know how awful, we know how awful it can be when unity falls to the ground, especially in large uh, sectors of society. Uh, Jesus spoke of the disastrous effects of disunity when he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Watching this week the unbelievable uh, news that has been unfolding in the nation of Afghanistan uh, in the takeover of that nation by the Taliban Afghans it's been heart-wrenching watching how NATO's efforts led primarily by the United States have failed to bring unity and peace in Afghanistan after 20 years, after 2,400 lives of U.S. soldiers, after billions and billions of dollars. It's difficult to hear and see that all those resources driven to try to bring stability and to bring peace and to bring unity have caused to be almost what looks like a waste. But a far more important battle for unity and peace must go on beyond just one nation as much as it's so needed in the nation of Afghanistan, a much more important battle for unity and peace must go on among Christians, among believers, among people whom God has redeemed to represent His kingdom here on earth. And the, and the investment and the resources and what has been spent to create that unity far outweighs the billions of dollars that the United States have spent. So this morning, 
I want us to look at the theme of unity, not simply at the level of nations, though it's needed, not simply at the level of companies, though it's needed, not simply at the level of families, though it's needed. I want to look at the theme of unity in the church. And I invite you to open God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verse 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the third Sunday when we're spending time in this particular set of verses in Ephesians. The theme of our message this morning is walk worthy by walking in unity. Here is God's word for us this morning. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is the word of the Lord for us. Amen. Let's pray. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you that you have worked on our behalf. And this morning as we look at the theme of unity, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of this unity, the preciousness of this unity, and what you have called us to do with this unity. We pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts in a, in a way that Christ would be exalted and in a way that your people would be encouraged and built up to walk in unity. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Christ and through the presence and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Walk worthy by walking in unity. This is a timely message for us today, especially as there are tons of reasons that are around us that can threaten our unity. The pandemic, politics, racial tensions, and simply the ongoing effects uh, of our broken world. Uh, all of these contribute to us uh, being tempted to act in ways that threaten our unity. We must hear afresh that as Christians, we are called to walk worthy by walking in unity. So let's look at what this unity is. Let's look at why must we keep this unity? And finally, let's look at how we must keep this unity. What is this unity? Why must we keep this unity? And how do we keep this unity? What is this unity? As human beings, we know that unity is essential for any great endeavor. Though at times it is hard to accomplish it, 
and it has challenges we must overcome in order to, to build it, it's not impossible to create unity. Uh, people develop a vision, create a goal that seems beneficial to the wider group, uh, rally people around a worthy cause, around cherished values. You present a lofty aim and the benefits of being united to achieve something greater than ourselves. And there you go, you can create unity. There's even a, a country in this world that is called in its name, United. You know what I'm talking about? The United States of America. We can create unity if we can bring states, people together to recognize that together we stand. Divided, we fall. Now, friends, you don't have to be a Christian to get unity, to create unity, to create this kind of unity. I can imagine the dynamics of presenting a lofty goal and the benefits for the, for the wider society may have been at place and, and at work uh, in Genesis 11 when the people united around the lofty goal of building a tall tower that would reach the heavens. Today, people can unite around common goals, common values, common affinities, and these can create a sense of unity in a group of people. Is this the unity that we are called to have as Christians? I want to tell you this morning that it is not. This is not the unity that we are called to have as Christians, even though there is tremendous overlap as part of common grace of the unity that non-Christians can have and the unity that Christians have. There's a lot of overlap, and yet there are some important differences. Our text tells us that the unity we are called to maintain is not our unity. I wonder if you read that carefully in the text, if you saw it. It's a subtle, subtle use of words that are important for us to notice that we are called to maintain not our unity, but the unity of the Spirit. And this is huge. This means that we don't create this unity. We do not create this unity. It has been created for us. And this is very important. If we read earlier in Ephesians, we learn that our unity is created by God. If we created this unity, we would only create unity with the people we like, with the people who are like us, with the people who have similar demographics or affinities or backgrounds 
or cultural similarities, but the unity that we are called to walk into is not our unity, is a unity created by God. And we learn in Ephesians earlier in the book that God created this unity with a very high price. Listen to Ephesians 2. Turn with me there if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Just a few verses that tell us how this unity was created by God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made both us, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Did you hear what God has done to create this unity? God created this unity not merely by coming up with a vision, with a, with a lofty vision statement and declaring it to people in order for God to unite people who are separated and far off from each other. God gave his only son, Jesus to come and take human flesh and to give his flesh to be crucified on a cross. And through his shed blood, God would bring people together. Through the shedding of the, of the blood of the Son of God, God would not merely forgive sins, but create unity. That is a special unity. It took the breaking of the body of Jesus to bring people together. Friends, the blood of Jesus is the price paid not only for our forgiveness of sins, but also for our unity. This is a unity created by God with a high price, the price of the blood of Jesus. And this unity is then applied through the Spirit of God to our hearts, the people whom God reconciles to himself, he unites. He unites to each other, and this happens through the Spirit. That's why in Ephesians 4, the unity is the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is at work in the lives of the people that God reconciles to himself through the body of Jesus. So unity in the church is not our unity. 
Unity in the church is the unity created by God with the price of the blood of his eternal son, Jesus, through the work of his spirit that is at work in us to apply the benefits of Christ to us. This means, friends, we don't have to use human gimmicks to create this unity. What we need to create unity among us is not to divide each other in affinity groups or age demographics or even a common goal and vision. What we need for this unity to be created among us is the Word of God that tells us that those who are reconciled by God are already united together through the Spirit's work. We must walk in unity, not in order to create it, but to reflect it. We must walk in unity because we are already united with each other in the sacrifice of Christ and through the work of the Spirit. And this is very freeing for us. We don't have to scramble to find ways to create unity. We don't have to scramble to find ways to, to unite us. Jesus is the foundation of our unity. What we should as Christians do for our unity is start with preaching Christ crucified. Preach Christ crucified on behalf of sinners. Not merely for the forgiveness of sins, but for our unity. Oh, friends, that is enough to unite us. Jesus Christ crucified, proclaimed as crucified, is enough to recognize, look around this room, what brought us the price God paid for our unity is not 20 years of investment. It's not billions of dollars. What God spent to create our unity is his own son. Torn for us. Broken for us. And what God has spent is the sending of his spirit whom he has sent and he's not taking him back after 20 years. That spirit is with us, stays in us, stays among us. He's at work among us. This is the unity that God created. So what should we Christians do to unite people together? Preach Christ crucified. And those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, we, to them we must declare that God unites them to Jesus and to each other. Let me remind you that when people are baptized, baptism is a sign of our union with Christ. Being united with Christ in his death, being united with Christ in his resurrection. But baptism is also being baptized into one body, which is the body of Christ. Baptism is also a public declaration that one is united not only with Christ, but also with his people. That's why here at Park Coast Baptist Church, when we 
when we prepare someone for the public uh, ordinance of baptism, we teach him not only what it means to follow Jesus, but we teach him what it means to follow Jesus in the company, in the, in the membership of the local church. Because to join Christ is to join his body. And this puts a question for us when we share the gospel with others. Do we only tell them? Do we only tell people that they get to be with, united with Christ and just stop there? Or do we also tell them that when they are united to Christ, they're also united with his people so that the people whom God has redeemed are called brothers and sisters in Christ, and this person gets to become one among the brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, friends, our unity is in Jesus Christ. God creates our unity through Christ, by the work of the Spirit, and we get to walk in that unity. We are called to maintain that unity. But make this very clear, our call is not to create the unity, our call is to maintain the unity that has been already created by God. This is a precious gift that God has given to us through Jesus. This is a unity we're called to walk in. Point number two, why must we walk in this unity? Why must we walk in this unity? There are many reasons uh, why we should walk in unity. Scripture, if we were to look at at various passages in Scripture that talk about unity, there's, there's, there will be a long sermon uh, why we should walk in unity. But let me restrain myself only to this passage for the reasons why we should walk in unity. And if we look at verses 4 through 6, I wonder if you noticed a word that gets repeated several times. Look at, look at just glance over verses 4 through 6. Did you notice the word that gets repeated several times? It's the word one. It shows up seven times if you were to count it. Does that surprise you? In a call to walk in unity, Paul would devote two verses, I'm sorry, three verses, four, five, and six, and, and seven ones to talk and hammer home, to talk about and hammering home the importance of unity. Why must we talk about unity? Why must we walk in this unity? The seven-fold repetition of the word one all points to unity. Now, the idea of one gives us the rationale why we must keep this unity. And we'll see two reasons why we must keep this unity. It's how we show who called us. It's how we show who called us. And if you were to look at the seven ones, you'll pick up that three of the seven refer to the triune God. One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. He is one God and yet three persons, the Spirit, the Lord, and the Father. The unity of God does not mean that each person of the Trinity is the same or that each of the persons of the Trinity have the same role. They have distinct roles, and yet 
the unity of God, the oneness of God in three persons is to, to be reflected in the unity that the Spirit creates in the church. This means that what motivates our labor for unity is God's being three persons and yet one God. God's very being as one should motivate us to labor for unity. So think of it this way. When you're tempted to get tired, to walk in unity, remember that our unity with one another is a reflection of the unity within the Godhead. This is who God is. Three persons, yet one God. But the reason why we should walk in unity is not only because it's a reflection of who God is, it's also a reflection of what we have been called to. Our unity, we must walk in unity because it's how we show what we have been called to. The remaining four ones that are used in these verses all have something in common. They show what we have been called to. We have been called to form one body, to have one hope, through one faith, displayed publicly in one baptism. So when we labor to maintain the unity of the Spirit among us, consider that our unity commends and shows off the oneness of what we have been called to do and be. The one body refers to the body of Christ, the local church. Just as the body is one, though it has many parts, and I might say here at Park Hills Baptist Church, the body of Christ in this manifestation of this particular local church has 98 parts. We have 98 parts in this body. But we are one body. So we, the church, just as the body is one, we, the church, are called to be one. There's one hope. There's only one hope. Do you know what it is? It's a hope of having our sins forgiven through Christ and inheriting eternal life through his name. Our hope is that no matter what happens to us here and now, our hope is that God has given us life through his son Jesus. And then all of this happens through one faith. If this faith refers to the exclusive ground for our hope of being forgiven, it is Jesus Christ crucified in the place of sinners who would repent and trust in Christ. There's no works to be added to this faith in order to be justified and declared right before God. This is not faith plus works. This is one faith that we are declared right before God solely, exclusively by entrusting our lives onto Christ who paid for our sins. Friends, do you know this one hope through this one faith? If you're not a Christian, if you've not turned to the Lord, if you have not made a, a, a response to God, I want to invite you to consider this one hope through this one faith in Jesus Christ. 
when you turn away from your sins to, to trust in Christ, there's one baptism. There's one baptism which professes and symbolizes our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection and our union with his people. There's one baptism. Each of these four experiences shows us the oneness of what we have been called to. So when we labor together for unity, when we walk in unity, my friends, we not only do it to show off and reflect who is the one who called us, but we also reflect what we have been called to. So brothers and sisters in Christ, consider, consider what motivates you to labor for unity. Is it convenience? If convenience motivates you for unity, you'll do it when it's convenient, and only when it's convenient. Is it preference? There's a host of reasons why we may want to be united. You know, somebody said, you know, imagine the strength that any one of your fingers has. There's not much you can do when you exercise strength with just one of your fingers. But put them all together there's much more strength you can exercise. We may say, yeah, unity is to be preferred over walking alone. Somebody once said, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah, it makes sense. It's better to be, to be united. So let's prefer to be united. But if if preference is the only motivator or the primary motivator that, that motivates you to, to walk in unity, it will not stand against the test of our differences. Because preferences is not a good enough motivation for our unity. Is it pragmatism? We need to be united to accomplish greater things together. Friends, if that's what motivates you, again, it will not stand the test of time. What should motivate us to maintain unity, to labor for unity? This text tells us why we should keep this unity. Because it shows, it shows off who is the one who called us. And it shows and reflects what we have been called to Walk worthy of our calling to salvation by laboring to maintain the unity of the Spirit because it reflects honorably on who God is and what our salvation is. So we get to understand what this unity is. We understand why we must maintain this unity. Finally, how must we keep this unity? How must we keep this unity? Remember, we don't create the unity. It's already created for us but we must keep it. We must preserve it. We must cultivate it. It's like children who are adopted in a family. When parents choose to adopt a child into their family, 
they usually have to go through a lot of hoops. There's money to be paid. There's a lot of processing and red tape to go through to get to have an adoption. The parents working through that effort create a unity, first a legal unity, so that the name of the adopted child now will be the name of the, of the family. There's, there's work to be done in, in cultivating the environment for that unity. That child will move in to the same household. And if the household already has sib- uh, children in it, there's going to be a separate room or toys or things that are bought so that the children will be treated equally. The, u- the parents create the unity. The child doesn't create the unity. A child, an adopted child, all he can do is step into the, into the unity that the adopted parents bring and create. But that child, when he's, once he's adopted, he is expected to live in that unity. He is expected to, to show off that unity that the parents have brought together. That child and the siblings now are supposed to, to prefer each other, to, to start living like a family. And friends, it's the same with us. Just because we don't create the unity of the Spirit does not mean that we get to be passive about this unity and somehow think of it as an optional experience for us. Oh, friends, we are called to live in this unity that has been created for us and to display it in our day-to-day lives. And here's how. Two ways. We're supposed to keep this unity of the Spirit in two ways. The first one is with eagerness. With eagerness. Verse 4 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Here's how some other translations um, translate this phrase. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort. Another translation says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Being diligent to preserve. This means, dear friends, that the maintaining of the unity of the Spirit is not an optional ministry for the members of the church. You don't get to sign up for it. You've already been signed up for it. It's like sometimes Mary Catherine, you know, signing up, uh, putting up a sign-up list for, for a particular ministry, and you find out that your ministry has, your name has already been signed up for it. Once in a while she does that. She's not supposed to, but once in a while she does that. The Spirit has signed all of us up for the ministry of maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Now, we are called to do it, not with grudges, not when convenient. Our part is, we are called to do it with eagerness. Now, you know what eagerness looks like. Can you think of some things in your life that you love to do 
and you love when you have an opportunity to do it, and you do it with eagerness. Can you think of some aspects of your life that you love to do with eagerness? You don't have to tell me now. But at lunch, if you're having lunch with someone today, tell someone, what are the things that you love to do with eagerness? And when you have thought about that and talked about that, consider that laboring and maintaining the unity of the Spirit must be done with something like that. With eagerness. Our first membership covenant vow that we have as members in this church starts with this commitment. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit. Oh, friends, I wonder, if, I wonder if you're praying for it. If you're a member of this church, are you praying for it? And if you're a member of this church, are you working for it? Just because we don't create that unity does not mean that we have no responsibility for it. Our very desire, for example, to, to encourage connect groups or to, to begin doing things together as a congregation more often is to encourage, to cultivate to live in the unity that has been already created for us. Can you think of one or two ways in your life in which you have shown eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Think of some ways that you have shown eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And if you can't think of it, then can you think of ways you can start showing that eagerness? Talk about this question at lunch today or uh, talk about it with other believers during the week. How we can labor together to maintain the unity of the Spirit with eagerness. A second way. A second way to cultivate the unity of the Spirit is through the bond of peace. Through the bond of peace. This is what the verse says eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the bond of peace is an incredible benefit when we have it. And sometimes we don't appreciate it until we lose it. Some of you know the pain of dealing with broken relationships, with extended family members, or sometimes even close family members. That danger exists in the church as well, among members of the church. And the bond of peace is a precious reality for believers. The bond of peace is not merely the absence of conflict, but it's a presence of harmony. The bond of peace is not merely the absence of conflict, but it's a presence of harmony. If this is an area that you want to grow in, the bond of peace, I want to commend to you a book called The Peacemaker by Pastor Ken Sandy. And he has two special studies that apply for peacemaking principles to families and one also specifically to children. It's a wonderful resource if you want to grow into understanding the bond of peace. Just... A very briefly, Pastor Sandy speaks of three types of people. Some are peace breakers. 
Others are peace fakers, and others are peacemakers. And it's not enough simply to say, oh, as long as I'm not a peace breaker, I'm good. Uh, peace breaking happens in all sorts of ways. Uh, it happens when a conflict arises. It happens when we hurt or even threaten others. Hopefully never through, work, through, through um, in any physical ways, but it does happen often through words and happens through emotions. By the way, if, if you're ever under physical threat or hurt, please come and talk to, to the pastors of the church. But it's often that, that we hurt each other through words and emotions. Manipulation verbally or emotionally happens all the time. These behaviors or attitudes cause peace breaking in our relationships. But peace breaking is not the only danger that we must flee from. There's a danger of being a peace faker. And be aware of this one. How does peace faking happen? Peace faking happens when we actually ignore the brokenness and simply don't pay attention to what is broken and try to present a good facade. By intentional ignorance, we can actually try to fake peace. Uh, peace faking can happen through denial of the difficulties that are going on. Someone may intentionally not want to deal with the brokenness, either because they just want to present a good face to others or because it's too difficult to deal with a problem or think that if they do bring it up, it will cause even more hurt. So you deny the brokenness uh, and try to put a, a, a peaceful facade. There's no peace. There's just a facade. That's peace faking. Or some may deny it thinking that just time alone will heal it. And you know that time alone doesn't heal. Uh, peace, peace faking happens through taking the path of escaping. Uh, there are times when removing oneself from a particular situation can be wise. But mere escaping or withdrawing could be a way one is avoiding pursuing the difficult path of seeking to make peace. So don't mistake the bond of peace with peace faking. Instead, pursue peacemaking. There are times when peacemaking involves overlooking an offense. There are times when peacemaking involves or means overlooking an offense. Think of Proverbs 19.11. Good, I, I have this verse written on my desk um, to remind me. I need this reminder daily. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. In ministry, there's many times when just, I just need to hear this. Now, I don't say that to bring an accusation against any of you. If you've been in church in a long time, you also know this truth. I don't, I'm, this is not just about church members and pastors. This is about church members as well. So you might want to consider putting this verse 
on your nightstand as well. Proverbs 19.11. So there are times when part of living in the bond of peace is simply overlooking an offense. But there are times when discussing the offense and bringing it up is needed in order to bring correction, in order that that offense does not grow into cangrene, either in, in the situation or in a cangrene in your own heart. If you are not able to overlook an offense, you must bring it up. Do not let that offense grow grudges in you. It starts boiling into, into gangrene that, that makes your soul no longer able to live in peace with the other person. There are times when discussing the offense is needed in order to protect against bitterness or in order to bring about the needed correction. And willingness to discuss openly, needing, needing to discuss directly, needing to discuss gently is a difficult path of trying to, to, to live at peace with others. One of the other verses says, as long as, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are times when it, you can exhaust all your efforts and still it does not bring peace because it's, peace is a two-way street. There are times when those discussions can become intense and it may be helpful to ask for help from others on how to have those discussions or even to ask another person to join you in having a discussion with a, with a person that, that you need to make peace with. There are times when, when we need to ask for help in order to have those open conversations. But that is part of the difficult path of peacemaking. And sometimes the situation is so tense that asking for biblical counseling would be wise and advisable if both parties agree. If both parties don't agree, that's, that's difficult. But here's the bottom line. That bond of peace is our responsibility to work through. We maintain the unity of the Spirit by cultivating, by protecting that bond of peacemaking. And don't be satisfied with simply making sure that you stay away from being a peace breaker. Watch out to see if perhaps you are a peace faker. And by the way, these things work in such a way that you're not the same person or same way all the time with everyone. You may be in general a peacemaker with most people, and yet there's two or three people in your life with whom you are not at peace. So consider carefully that this is not just a sort of an open blanket. Each person in your relationship with different people will look differently. But here's the bottom line. This is a critical responsibility for us to walk into, to maintain, because it's how we maintain the unity of the Spirit. If we don't, we run the danger of acting against what Jesus sought to accomplish by shedding his blood for us. Now, let me make a comment. There's some of you who are experiencing serious brokenness with people who are not believers. And it's very difficult to appeal to this kind of peace with non-believers. So the, the, this, these arguments make sense primarily with those who are believers. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue peace with non-believers. We should as much as we can, but we don't have the same foundation. 
But with believers, we have a common foundation, Jesus Christ. And we can walk together in that unity that he created for us through the, through the, through the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we don't act in the bond of peace, we act in the danger, we act the danger of, of actually undoing or uh, walking against what Christ has accomplished through the shedding of his blood. Friends, may we not treat the blood of Jesus lightly by being negligent or passive in how we maintain the bond of peace with one another. May we not treat the blood of Jesus lightly by being negligent or passive in our eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Instead, may we, may we be eager and diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit among us through the bond of peace. And the question for us is, are you walking in this kind of eagerness, in this kind of unity with eagerness? Are you walking in this kind of unity with eagerness? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for doing what we could never do for ourselves. Father, we could never in our own efforts create unity with you. And though in our own efforts we could create some level of human unity with other people, we could never create the unity that you have created between us to be one body, one family. Oh Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would help us to grow in eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And for those of us for whom right now we are dealing with relationships in which that bond of peace is missing, Father, I pray that you by your Spirit would give wisdom, discernment, energy, willingness to labor for that bond of peace, to be peacemakers in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen.